Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show today, so let's get right at it. Are you hoping to be more organized in 2022 to declutter and create less waste that goes into a landfill? If so, my guest Tara McKenna can help you out. She'll be here in just a few minutes to talk about Don't Be Trashy, a practical guide to living with less waste and more joy. We'll get to her shortly. First up, though, let's talk about true crime. In an era when news is more upsetting than most mainstream monster movies, I find true crime has replaced my former fascination with Frankenstein. A rewatch of In Cold Blood, for instance, gave me a jolt unlike any recent traditional gore fest. It's not a horror film in the conventional sense, but because it's a true story of senseless murder, it sent shivers down my spine. In my heart, I know that Frankenstein and Dracula don't exist, but true evil, like we often hear about in true crime, actually does. It's easy to know who's good and who's bad, and good generally wins in the end, and I think that that is the appeal of true crime. We'll be talking about true crime today with Sarah Weinman. Her new book, Scoundrel, is the wild and true story of a murderer who conned the people around him, including neoconservative thinker and National Review founder William F. Buckley, into helping set him free. Sarah Weinman joins me today via Zoom from her home in New York City. I began the interview by asking where her love of crime and crime stories came from. I feel like it's been an ongoing interest for most of <laughs> most of my <laughs> life. But to answer it a little bit more specifically, I have what I call the comedic answer, and I have the less comedic and more, I suppose, um, traumatic answer. <laughs> but the comedic one is that when I was about eight or so, at the time I was invested in being a baseball fan. Um, I grew up and I was born and raised in Ottawa. So the nearest team was the Montreal Expos, which sadly is no longer with us. And I feel, I feel like my love of baseball kind of evaporated when <laughs> morphed into something else, be it the Washington Nats, whatever. But the point being is that I was eight and huge baseball fan and there was a book around the house called the baseball encyclopedia and i just got i had this notion that i wanted to look up <laughs> all the play all the ball players who had died in various uh, dramatic and traumatic <laughs> circumstances and i regaled this to my parents who were understandably baffled and to some degree amused the more serious answer as i mentioned is that in that time frame which would have been the late 80s early 90s this was around the time when young girls and women were disappearing and found murdered in Eastern and Central Ontario. And it turned out that those girls were victims of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. So Kristen French, Leslie Mahaffey, and being a little bit younger than they were at the time of their disappearances, it just, the, the fear was palpable. And it was something that I was always aware of and wanted to understand, first of all, who would do such a thing? How did this happen? And what happens when one gets essentially close to an abyss and how do you kind of step away from that? And so going forward, it just sort of, I think all of these things kind of influenced everything that came thereafter, be it my eventual pursuit of a forensic science master's degree and reading a lot of crime fiction and then true crime and just doing all of the subsequent journalism and book writing that I have done just to kind of figure out 
How did this all happen? Let's set up the story. Edgar Smith was once the most famous convict in America. What do we need to know to understand his story? So Edgar Smith was a young man from Bergen County, New Jersey, which is just across the way from New York City. If you take the George Washington Bridge, for those who are familiar with the Manhattan geography. And he was about 23. He had been a um, veteran of the United States military and was sort of shiftless, had, had, had just gotten married and had a two-month-old baby. His wife was named Patricia. The baby was Patty Ann. And the community in which he lived in, he was living with, in a trailer park with his family called Ramsey. And just over the way, there was a town called Mawa. And so he, it was the kind of place where you, you know, you hung out at this one place for Saturday night and you kind of went driving around in your car with your friends and you went out on dates with girls if they were available. And sometimes even if, if you were married and didn't, and didn't like that you were married and you still wanted to have some semblance of the single life, then you still went out. So, you know, it was the 50s, so whatever happened was not as talked about as, say, now when things are supposedly a lot more permissive. So in March of 1957, he had known this 15-year-old girl named Victoria Zielinski. They were sort of friendly. She was going out with a 20, early 20-something friend of his named Don Hommel. And also knew the sisters. It was just like small town stuff where everybody knew everybody. You're listening to Sarah Weinman on The Richard Krauss Show. Her book, Scoundrel, How a Convicted Murderer Persuaded the Woman Who Loved Him, the Conservative Establishment, and the Courts to Set Him Free, is available now wherever you buy fine books. He had had a lot of trouble keeping a job. And because he had a wife and two-month-old baby at home, that just added to the sense of anger and rage that was within him. And so when Vicky disappeared after going to a friend's house to do homework together, and then her younger sister, Myrna, was supposed to meet her halfway and they were going to, supposed to walk home, when Vicky didn't show up, then alarm bells started to sound within the family and the father organized a search party. And so when Vicky's body was found, it didn't take very long for the police to land on Edgar Smith as a suspect, especially because the circumstantial evidence was quite overwhelming. They found his car, there was blood in it. They found his pants, there was blood in it. And so within about 24 to 48 hours, they had interrogated him and arrested him. How did Edgar Smith dupe William F. Buckley? His name may have faded from people's memories a little bit, but Buckley was a famous American public intellectual. He was a conservative author and political commentator who was often on television. Someone you don't really imagine being sucked in by someone like Edgar Smith. He's convicted of murdering Vicky Zielinski and he's sentenced to death and the verdict came in astonishingly quickly. I think the jury was out maybe less than an hour and a half. And so from then on, it became a race against time. Would he be executed? How would he fight against it? And he just had was very determined not to die. And he took uh, classes and he got his GED. And yes, there was a prison warden who brought around magazines. And one of them that he saw was National Review. And then when that warden when that person moved up, moved up to a different prison, there was no more access to National Review. So first, um, this little nugget of information, which appeared in a New Jersey 
column done by someone who was very friendly with Edgar Smith. That got the attention of people at the National Review. So first there was a Canadian reporter named Don Cox who made Buckley aware of it. And Buckley was like, well, I'll give him a subscription for life. And that's how that correspondence began in 1962. But originally it was just an article that a staffer at National Review was going to write. And then it just devolved into this very extended correspondence. And to answer your question as to why Buckley believed in Edgar's innocence, I, the thing that I arrived at working on Scoundrel and researching Buckley's life is that he really valued loyalty and friendship above all else. Now, his politics are not mine. And I make it very clear in the book that there were certain things that he wrote, that he espoused, that he believed in, that they just, they could be either differing or reprehensible, but that sort of spectrum. What I did come away from, though, is that to be friends with Buckley was probably a very rewarding experience because his whole thing was ideology should not get in the way of a good friendship. And so he was friends with people all across the political spectrum, uh, far left, middle of the road, whatever you whatever you want to call it. And so for Edgar Smith, what attracted him was this man's seeming intellectual ability in letters. He could write. He had interesting things to say. And so I think there was this sense that he believed he was in a genuine friendship with the man. And so if Edgar was saying he didn't kill Victoria Zelensky, Buckley was going to believe him. And that informed everything that happened thereafter, including the article that he wrote for Esquire magazine, helping him to get his book published, and eventually helping him to be freed. In 1971, Smith was successful with his 19th appeal against the fair nature of his trial. He claimed his confession was obtained under duress. At a new trial, Smith's confession was ruled to have been obtained unfairly, and he was offered parole if he accepted a charge of second-degree murder. He accepted the deal, and on December 6, 1971, he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was released from prison at age 37. Later that same day, he appeared with William F. Buckley on the television show Firing Line. Here is part of Buckley's introduction for Smith. The dramatic events of today leave his readers and some of his friends astounded. Why should he now, having won the important legal battle, plead guilty? It is to throw light on this episode and on the implications of it and on other matters of ultimate human concern that Edgar Smith is here. I wish to make only this point. Edgar Smith pleaded guilty in a court of law and in return, the judge let him go free. <clears throat> he cannot formally renounce that plea because he is on probation but he can answer questions about why he did as he did. And since I am not on probation, I can say on behalf of myself and of the many others who have studied the case and the circumstances and who know the man who is here tonight, that we believe profoundly that on March 5th, 1957, he left Victoria Zelensky alive. Smith was forgotten about when he died in prison in 2008, but there was a time when he became quite famous. Tell me about how he briefly became a figurehead for prison reform. Well, certainly when you have served over 14 years on death row, which at the time was the longest that anybody had served in a death row. I mean, 
it's interesting to say that, especially now in America, when there are many people on death row who have been there for 30, even 40 years. But at the time, and it's also interesting to note that there were a number of Supreme Court decisions in America that essentially codified ways in which the police should be dealing with suspects. That's when the Miranda warnings came about. And that's when another Supreme Court hearing in, basically said that Edgar had been coerced into confessing the crime or that the interrogation was not done by the book. And so that helped him to be freed. And so he talked about a lot of this once he was a civilian out in the world and he could go back and refer to what was in his first book, Brief Against Death, and also in the subsequent book that he published called Getting Out in 1973. And so, yeah, he would be a public speaker and talk about ways in which the prison system should be changed. But he was also kind of cynical that anything would ever come of it. And so there is this strain, like th this was not an idealist. This was somebody who was always out for his own skin and always looking out for himself first. Do we hold William F. Buckley somehow accountable in the violence that followed Smith's release from prison? A few years after Edgar Smith was released, he and his second wife were living in the San Diego area. And once again, uh, his fortunes were falling. He was not getting book contracts. He wasn't getting magazine contracts. Uh, all job opportunities had dried up and his wife was supporting him. And so that old rage kicked in once again. And so he went out in search of somebody to take it out on. And that person was Lisa Osborne. And he came very close to killing her, but she survived. And he went on the run for a while, but eventually he was caught. And one of the reasons he was caught is that he called Buckley, though Buckley did not pick up. His secretary, Francis Bronson, did. And as soon as she hung up the phone, she called Buckley and uh, went to the FBI. What do you think we learned from someone like Edgar Smith? I mean, most of the things that I take away from working on Scoundrel is that it's really important to recognize that who you may be holding up for artistic integrity mm -hmm. might not have the character and the moral integrity to back it up. You're listening to Sarah Weinman, author of Scoundrel, How a Convicted Murderer Persuaded the Woman Who Loved Him, the Conservative Establishment, and the Courts to Set Him Free on The Richard Krauss Show. And so it's very interesting to me that Buckley, as well as others, especially Sophie Wilkins, who was the book editor uh, responsible for shepherding Brief Against Death to publication and who later had, or not later, um, who concurrently had a very complex epistolary relationship that became extremely inappropriate. But she's a fascinating figure. And so people like that, they're sort of primed to be conned but at the same time, we all are susceptible to manipulators. And it's just a matter of finding the method and the means through which you manipulate. And ultimately, what I think matters most is that we remember and hold up the people that Edgar Smith harmed, assaulted, and in some instance murdered. So uh, I think a lot more about Vicki Zielinski or his wives, Patricia Horton and Paige Heimeyer, or Juliet Scheinman, the woman who he began a relationship with immediately after prison, or Lisa Osborne, or anyone else who was harmed. Because ultimately, that's what matters most. It's not a question of whether he had literary talent or not. And there's some argument to be made that the literary talent that he displayed was something of a, 
was something of an illusion as well. But I'm much more interested in the people that he harmed as well as how those who were drafted into believing in his talent essentially got snookered. I played you a clip earlier of William F. Buckley and Edgar Smith on Buckley's television show Firing Line, recorded the day Smith was released from prison. Here's another clip from that same interview where Buckley asks about Smith's plans for the future. What uh, formal difficulties lie in your way in, in, of a professional nature? Is there anything that disqualifies you to do anything? Well, I couldn't be a lawyer or a police officer or certainly couldn't be a judge. I really, I really haven't even thought about that right now. Uh, at the present time, I'm trying to believe the fact that I'm not still in the death house. As a storyteller, as you're looking for the next project, do you start with the killers or the victims? How do you decide which of your stories that you're going to tell? I would imagine that these books can take years to research. You have to get enveloped to a certain extent in the story. And if you're dealing with very dark material, I suppose it can kind of take over your head a little bit. So where does it start with you? I had known about Norman Mailer's advocacy for Jack Henry Abbott, a prisoner who wrote In the Belly of the Beast. And when that book was published on the very day that it appeared, on the very day that it had a rave review from the New York Times, that's when Abbott had gotten into a, a fight and killed a man named Richard Adden. So that somehow penetrated the media consciousness a lot more than Edgar Smith and how he had this friendship with William F. Buckley. And I wanted to know why. So I started with that. And that was around the time when I reached out to Edgar himself, he was still alive then, and discovered very quickly that this was not going to be a fruitful <laughs> correspondence, that he, people like him, they're really not that interesting. And I think ultimately that's kind of what I arrive at from working on Scoundrel, is that Edgar Smith is the least important character in the book. It's all about those in his orbit who were harmed by him and how they were affected. And so that's also what drives me is trying to illuminate their stories and you know seek a diff a, a much deeper connection in the narrative than just i'm going to tell a story of this killer and oh isn't it crazy like that's the surface way of looking at it but there, there's a lot more going on you say he's the least interesting character in the book but in real life there must have been a point in which people thought that he was charismatic that in some ways that he was worth looking into there you know i've had enough experience doing crime reporting where i have talked to convicted murderers or people on death row and none of them ever gave me this creeping sense of just i don't want to be ever be in the same room as this person as edgar smith did and yet when I was sitting in the archives reading his letters, especially those to his book editor, Sophie Wilkins, I could absolutely understand why he was so compelling and why people would want to have a relationship with him, because he was doing the work to try to essentially ensnare them into his way of thinking. He would flatter, he would cajole, he, would he just had this innate ability to suss out weak spots in people. And I think with Buckley, because he knew that this was somebody who valued friendship and loyalty, he could sort of exploit that. A really instructive thing of compare, and a really instructive note of comparison is, was reading through the early letters that he sent Sophie, and then her reaction when she met him for the first time, and this idea of, wait, this is the man who's been <laughs> romancing me by letter? 
his teeth are bad, his accent's weird, he's not speaking very much, what, what is going on here? And then she kind of puts that away, and they still continue on by letter what had happened before. So there is a lot of willful disregarding of what's in front of you. And that's why I say, I don't think any of us could sidestep a personality like Edgar Smith, because his whole point was trying to convince you of his truth. That was Sarah Wyman on The Richard Krauss Show. Her book, Scoundrel, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Are you hoping to be more organized in 2022? I mean, who isn't? To declutter, maybe? Maybe create less waste that goes into a landfill? If so, my next guest can help you out. Tara McKenna says she's always been environmentally aware, but seriously began her low-waste journey in 2017 after traveling, snorkeling through trash in Bali, Indonesia, or picking up litter on trails in southern Ontario taught her that waste is a worldwide issue. She joins me today to talk about her book, Don't Be Trashy, A Practical Guide to Living with Less Waste and More Joy. Here's Tara McKenna. When did you first realize in your life that you could live without creating a bunch of waste? Yeah, you know, what? It was, it's been a few years now. Um, but yeah, a few years ago, I was like, oh, how can I live more sustainably? And I had already, you know, come across minimalism as a lifestyle. So I was already looking to live with less. And I was already on the train to detoxify my home. So living with less harsh chemicals. And really the next best step was to start reducing my waste. And when I did that, I was like, I went a hundred percent all in zero waste. Like I didn't want any, you know, packages of any type in my house. And it got to a point where it actually wasn't very maintainable in our household to live that way. So we've come to a, a better place these days where we're not like too hardcore, but we're also still on board with the low waste lifestyle. Okay, well, tell me about that journey, because it's a difficult one for people. I think that you were very committed. There will be a lot of people out there who are kind of committed. So tell me about finding, it sounds like, a little bit of moderation in your approach to this. You know, like exactly what you said, I was a bit hardcore at the start, and not everybody even wants to go down that path. And that is precisely why I wrote the book, Don't Be Trashy, because I wanted to actually create a place where people could, you know, venture into the lifestyle without having to be, you know, hardcore about it, right? Because I feel like already there's this narrative in the world that being, you know, an environmentalist entails having to be perfect, right? You can't, you know, do one thing and not the other thing, right? So I wanted a book where it was like a really a you do you kind of lifestyle, right? Because nobody should be put on a life, like a, a pedestal of like, oh, well, you're an environmentalist. So you're totally over in that camp. And I, I'm in this camp and I can do whatever I want. Well, it's like, well, there has to be some middle ground. I discovered I needed some middle ground. So this book is full of middle ground because it's really like, who am I to say what people should do with their lives, right? Like, you know, there's different circumstances, like different, you know, whether you're in an urban environment or you're in a rural environment, there's so many different ways to live your life. You, you know, you might have an abundance of cash or you might be strapped for cash, or maybe you have religious or cultural values that change the way you live your life. So I wanted a book that really was, you know, anybody who reads it can tailor the lifestyle to live their best life with less waste. So let's look at certain ways 
easy ways that people can start to kind of ease into the lifestyle. To make it super simple, there my favorite thing to do would be to make some easy swaps. So a couple of my favorite swaps include, you know, going from bottled shampoo and conditioner to bar shampoo and conditioner. So right there, you're eliminating those plastic bottles and it's a simple swap. Like it's, it's not complicated. You don't have to do a trash audit, but if you want to go for it, I talk about that in my book, but you know, there's easy things that people can do and it doesn't even require you taking your own containers to the store. And if you want to give that a try, that's a really cool option too, because there's a lot of like refill shops that are starting to pop up. So if you wanted to get some liquid soap, you bring your own container and you can fill that up at the store. But if that's not your jam, then, you know, doing something as simple as getting the bar shampoo is great. And, and not just bar shampoo, like this is kind of taking over all the different types of, you know, products we use in our home. You can even get um, like dish soap in bar form, right? So you're eliminating the bottle for the dish soap. So there's lots of like uh, concentrated or solid options for things that we buy in our home from cleaning supplies to toiletries that I really love. And also the nice thing about a lot of these products is because they are, you know, a bit more eco-conscious, right? They're meant to be like plastic-free, low plastic, low waste. They tend to be, you know, better for the planet from an ingredients perspective too. I would guess that the bars of soap for your hair and for your dishes and that sort of thing do just as good a job as well. So it's not like you're giving up something well, the only thing you're giving up is the plastic bottle. Yeah. And actually that's a comment that a lot of people had. So I think when the lifestyle, the zero waste lifestyle started to gain traction, a lot of the products at the time were maybe not as effective, but mm. these days, you know, a lot of smaller and growing businesses and even mainstream larger companies are starting to ad adopt this trend because it's really grown in the last few years. You're listening to Tara McKenna on the Richard Krause show. Find her book, Don't Be Trashy, A Practical Guide to Living with Less Waste and More Joy, wherever you buy fine books. And now, like, you know, a few years ago, people might have been like, oh, the sh shampoo bar is nowhere near as good as my bottle shampoo well those days are gone because quite frankly they've got phenomenal products and it sounds like i work for a company that makes <laughs> these but i don't but now they've got shampoo bars for all different hair types so they've really come a long way textile waste is something uh, that is touched on in the book i don't really think about clothing as turning into waste, but of course it does. So it's a huge part of the amount of waste that we produce. So tell me a little bit about how we can kind of change our attitude towards textile waste and, and change the tide on it a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I, I think you're probably right. I doubt it's top of mind for most people to think about what happens to their clothes. But these days with fast fashion, you know, we've got inexpensive clothes. They're really easy to purchase and you know cheap to buy quite often so it's easy to buy more than we need change our style every other week if we wanted to which you know that's very different from our you know grandparents great grandparents so if we look back a few generations ago that was never part of their you know lifestyle to change their style up so frequently and that's just become commonplace these days so when we're changing our style so fast and buying stuff so cheaply it's easy to really just toss some of it in the bin and even stuff it can be so low quality that even if you did donate it 
know, people might not want to rebuy it or, or it's not even, you know, really great quality for textile recycling, which is too bad, right? So even textile recycling businesses are finding that the quality of the materials that they're getting are almost useless for, you know, the items that they make after recycling the materials, which tends to be like a lot of like cleaning cloths or like industry and stuff like that. That's um, one of the ways that you can recycle fabrics, but quite honestly, they're even not liking the stuff that they're getting. So, um, so yeah, so one way we can kind of revisit that is just to figure out, okay, well, if the styles are changing so quickly, how about, you know, consider what is your own personal style, you know, like define what you want to wear and what that looks like. And sure, maybe you want to change it up once in a while, maybe accessorize, but if you build like your capsule wardrobe and the way I like to look at it is like what's in your laundry basket because whatever is in your laundry basket those are your heavy hitters those are the pieces that you're wearing more often and then you know if you have stuff that you're not wearing in your closet stuff that you've never seen in your laundry bin there's a good chance that that's probably not the best way for you to build your wardrobe for you know reducing your textile waste how do you respond to people that think well I'm just one person it doesn't really matter if I make any change if I start using bars of soap instead of uh, bottled shampoo, because I'm just one person. Now, it's like that old shampoo commercial. If you tell two friends and they tell two friends and it, and it grows and grows from there, it becomes a movement. But I think that that's a stumbling block for a lot of people who think it's just me. I, I can't change the world. Yeah. And you know what I my the the thing that I think immediately when people People have that conversation about, you know, one person doesn't make a difference, but it's like, first of all, why are we giving up our personal agency in our own lives, right? Like, you are one person. And yes, you know, you are part of a community, you're part of a family, you're part of, you know, a workplace, there's so many different parts to our identity that involve other people, right? We don't, typically, we don't live in isolation, right? So I just think that, we have an individual, like as an individual, individ hopefully you can cut that out. <laughs> as individuals, we really have like, you know, an opportunity to make better choices. I'm in conversation with Tara McKenna. Her book, Don't Be Trashy, A Practical Guide to Living with Less Waste and More Joy, is about changing your mindset to one of minimalism and conscious consumption, a mindset that she says is as good for your wallet and your well-being as it is for the planet. I enjoyed talking with Tara McKenna in the last segment, so we've kept her around for one more segment. We begin with a startling statistic. And one, you know, statistic really stands out to me is that, you know, one more than one million plastic bottles are consumed per minute worldwide. So if we realize like that's a lot of waste, I can't even conceptualize how many plastic bottles that is. So think about if millions of people chose not to do it, what would that look like? So we are one out of millions of people that can make a difference. And I would just also encourage people not to give up their own agency, right? To You have an opportunity to live the life, you know, that you want to live. And I'm not here to tell people to live differently if they don't want to. But this is actually an opportunity to live better and live lighter on the planet too. Let's talk about you personally. Off the top of the interview, we talked about that a little bit, but how has it really changed your life? It is a career for you now. You're writing about it and, and uh, there is uh, the website, uh, the Zero Waste Collective. Uh, but 
personally, how has it changed your life? When I think about where I was, like, I'd say I really packed in a 10 year journey into my book. Um, like I said, like through minimalism, detoxifying my home and going low waste. So when I think about my life before I encountered any of that, you know, I was on the consumer treadmill, right? So I remember moving in with my husband into our first home. It was a century home um, when we first got married and the closets were so tiny, like incredibly tiny, like <laughs> for today's standards, yeah. I couldn't fit all of my clothes in the closet. I, you know, once I put clothes in my closet and in my, my dresser drawers, I still had a mountain of clothes on my bed and holy cow, like what am I supposed to do? With all of these clothes. So I just got to a place where I was clearly consuming too much. You know, I was just barely paying off my credit card every month. And, you know, sometimes I didn't care that much about my diet. You know, I wasn't eating terribly, but I wasn't eating great. Um, so this lifestyle has definitely enabled me to live with less. My clothes fit in my closet, no problem. I don't have excess sitting around anywhere. And I don't have walk-in closets, even though I don't live in that century home anymore. I still don't have a giant closet. And I'm eating better because we're trying to avoid, you know, too much packaged food. Like we like aren't as hardcore as we were at the beginning, um, but we are still buying some packaged food. But the less packaged food that you eat, it tends to be more whole foods that you're eating instead. So I'm eating healthier. And because I'm choosing to live with less, but not in a way that I feel you know, deprived by any means. Um, but, you know, I have no issues with like credit card debt. My credit card balance is always zero um, at the end of every month. So there's so many benefits that even if you're not a tree hugger, like people do not have to be tree huggers to buy this book and, and get benefits from it. You're going to live your best life regardless. And then the side benefit, if you're not an environmentalist and you don't have to be, is that the You've got all of these other amazing things like eating better, saving money, and just living better overall. Let's do some quick questions. What is the best way to do a pantry audit? <laughs> the best way to do it, uh, well, I did it with a pen and paper. You can mm -hmm. do it with um, a spreadsheet if you're super keen, but it's essentially taking stock of the food in your you know, in your kitchen, in your pantry, your fridge, your cupboards, whatever, and just finding out what ways you could reduce waste um, from the items that you have in your home. So if you buy milk, well, the one way I, you know, made a swap there was I discovered that, you know, my bagged milk, plastic bags, I could instead get milk in a jug that I could return to the store. And that's not going to be available to everybody, but that was something that was available in the city that I live in. And so that was an easy swap. So basically the pantry audit, you just make your list, and figure out if there's alternatives that would reduce your waste. You're listening to Tara McKenna on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, Don't Be Trashy, a <clears throat> You're listening to Tara McKenna on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, Don't Be Trashy, a practical guide to living with less waste and more joy is in bookstores right now. What is the sharing economy? I think it's fairly obvious, but explain it to me. Yeah, I think the sharing economy is most uh, known with like, you know, Airbnb and Uber where you know, if you own a home, you can rent it out to other people and, and you don't have to own stuff, right? And there's so many different, you know, new big companies that are doing that, but there's a lot of like smaller scale way, ways to engage in the sharing economy in your community. Um, so for example, like in the city I live in, we have a tool library. So if you 
need a drill, but you don't want to buy a drill, you could borrow a drill from the tool library, or you can participate in fa Facebook groups. There's like, you know, a buy nothing group, for example, where you could easily swap things or give stuff away for free or, or get things that you need from other people. So there's definitely different, many different ways to participate in the sharing economy. This all sounds to me like the way that people used to live many years ago as a regular thing. Milk came in glass bottles. It was you shared things with your neighbor tools and that kind of thing. This sounds like a lot of these ideas are just revisiting things that we once used to do just as a matter of course. And then we went off course somewhere. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, when we look at like how much changed from, you know, the early 1900s to the end of the century and now to today, you know, it, we've really gone the complete opposite direction of that. So it's almost like, okay, how can we get back to some of those elements, but perhaps in a more modern way? So maybe our community is connecting through online spaces like Facebook or, you know, other social media outlets, you know, kind of drawing on what our grandparents would do, but with today's technology. And the final quick question, what is the one thing that we could do that would make a huge impact, but doesn't seem like it's a, a life changer? I would say just consuming less, you know, um, is the biggest and best thing we can do because, you know, you can have a zero waste kit if you want to, and a zero waste kit would have, you know, your reusable water bottle, your reusable coffee cup, your reusable bag, basically all of the reusables that can help you reduce single use plastics. But even if, you know, you're not keen on that kind of thing for whatever reason, if you just consume less in general, that will have a huge impact because each item that you purchase, say it's a brand new item, not second hand, but each brand new item that you buy has its own footprint because resources were required to make it and manufacturing put it together. And then, you know, it got packaged and shipped and made its way to your home in one format or another. So if we consume less overall, then that entire chain has, you know, reduced its impact just by choosing to live with less. That was Tara McKenna. Here's a little list of some low waste living tips from her book. Do a trash audit and make a list of goals to reduce your waste over the coming year. Reacquaint yourself with the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Create your own zero waste kit for life on the go. Add a few more R's, rot, refuse, repair, repurpose, rethink. Find your motivation, your why for becoming less trashy. Define what sustainability looks like in your life, given your personal circumstances and preferences. If all of this interests you, check out her book called Don't Be Trashy, A Practical Guide to Living with Less Waste and More Joy. So a big thanks to Tara McKenna for joining me. Also a big thanks to Sarah Wyman. Her book, Scoundrel, is available right now wherever fine books are sold. Of course, as always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.